Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. This weekend, June 26th to 28th, would have marked the culmination of Dublin's annual Pride celebrations, the parade through the city centre, attended by thousands. The parade may be off, but there's still a world of LGBT plus entertainment to be found online from both Irish and international filmmakers. Joining me later on the episode is academic and filmmaker Barry Dignam, who'll help me look back at some of the most pivotal moments in Irish LGBT plus cinema history. But first... One of the most charming films to hit our screens so far this year is The Wonderful Dating Amber, directed by David Frayne and starring Fiona O'Shea and Lola Pettigrew as two gay teenagers who decide to fake date each other in order to distract the schoolyard bullies. Now streaming on Amazon Prime, here's a clip. Well? Fine. I'll be your boyfriend. Pretend boyfriend. Pretend real boyfriend. And it's just till school is over? Yeah. Yeah. Or... Yeah. Or longer. No. Okay. Just because we are... You know, uh... You can say it. Gay. I'm gay. You're gay. We're gay. Okay, just because we are. Just because we are. Big gay wall. Whatever it is. Stop saying it. Stop saying it. Just stop. And there's nothing gay about the wall. But it doesn't matter because it just... It doesn't matter what we are, but we don't have to be. And director David Frayne joins me now on the iFi podcast. David, tell us, how has your lockdown been going? What have you been watching while you've been stuck in the house? Um, it's been fine. I mean, I've definitely been watching a lot, um, which has been which has been fun. Um, yeah, no, it's been okay. I've, been, I've kept busy, kind of going through a lot of box sets, watching a lot of older films. I think I've been desperate for kind of light and comedic material, and I, there isn't actually that much made at the moment. So I've been kind of going through old kind of Billy Wilder and some great Pre- Preston Sturges stuff, which has been fun, and some Palin Pressburger. So yeah, it's been it's been grand. It's been grand. And I'm guessing the publicity tour for Dating Amber has been very different to the one for The Curate a couple of years ago. It's actually been surprisingly good and full on. I mean, I think there has been a lot of press, particularly with, with Fiona and Lola, who are great. And then, of course, Sharon is amazing. Um, but yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't felt lessened. If anything, it feels a bit more intense than last time around. I think because there isn't a huge amount being released at the moment and because this is such a heartwarming comedy i think there's this bit of a desperation for it so it's been really fun i mean you just get used to meeting on like this rather than in a hotel lobby but um i've really enjoyed it and it's been a really nice distraction in the last couple of weeks Um, and then a lot of social media interaction which has been great so yeah it's been good it's been really good we want to go back to the old ways we don't want to do it like this forevermore I mean, I like it. I don't like, I don't like leaving my house, so I'm fine. With it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm enjoying it. It's great. And we were just talking about, uh, before we came on air, just about how eager we are to get back to the cinema. Um, and David, I was just wondering, can you remember what your first experience of going to the cinema was? My first experience was, um, I think it was Bambi and trying not to cry in Nace in Kildare, um, which was, I remember bawling my eyes out, but pretending I'd just drop some sweets to distract from it. So I think that was my first as a, as a wee-in. Yeah, um, it's, it's weird because 
you know, we had a local cinema called Oscars in Newbridge and we would very rarely go to Dublin to the cinema. But my love of film really came from VHS and came from TV and stuff and watching, discovering them through my local extra vision. And it was later on in my kind of later teens that I really discovered the joy of cinema and the joy of going to a cinema when I was in college then in Dublin. So, you know, I have a, such a... I have such a fake nostalgia for the cinema because actually my favorite films I discovered just playing them over and over again on VHS or those late night, um, those great late night films they used to play on Channel 4, which they no longer do, where you used to discover so many gems. I, you know, I, I, I kind of think about that a lot, that like all my favorite films I discovered on VHS, not, on, not in the cinema for, for the most part, particularly as a child. Um, I, I'm like, why do I want the cinema? Like, I love the cinema, but like... Is it? It's a false nostalgia <laughs> to, to <laughs> some extent with me. But don't get me wrong; I really want cinemas to reopen. I'm desperate to go. <laughs> yeah. I remember when videotapes came out first, particularly with us, because we lived on a cul-de-sac, and there was this whole kind of community thing, obviously, where somebody would go, "Oh, oh, they have the Hand that Rocks the Cradle. Let's go all go over and watch the Hand that Rocks the Cradle in the house." And the videotape in the space of 24 hours would go to like three or four houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I love that. I mean, I kind of, I really miss that. Um, you know, and it's different with streaming and stuff. But I just think, I think there's such an infinite loop, but you don't watch it in the same way. And I don't think there's that sense of community with it. Um, we're, this is our, our kind of special Pride episode because um, this weekend would marked what would have been uh, this year's uh, Pride Parade in Dublin. David, can you remember what, what was your first memory of LGBT representation in a film or a TV series that you can remember? Um, God, I think the very first time I saw queer representation on cinema was when I was really young, um, My Beautiful Laundrette uh, was on TV, I think it was. And I was too young to, I, I remember tuning in halfway through, it was during a scene where um, Omar confronts Johnny about seeing him at a kind of a fascist rally and, you know, his past. And I didn't really realise what was happening and then it becomes quite intimate and I did, had no idea. And I was such a repressed little boy. I had no sense of what was going on. I think it petrified me um, at the time. And it was later on when I re kind of visited the film as I think I was a student and realized how lovely and amazing a film it is and kind of how surprisingly warm and hopeful the film is um, and loving it. But I think when I first saw it, I was just in such denial, it scared the crap out of me. And then when I was later in, um, in my teen years, like a lot of people, I would kind of, kind of cheekily try and watch um, Queer as Folk when nobody was around, uh, which was just such a massive eye-opener and such a kind of joyous representation of being gay. Um, and I hadn't seen that before at all. So yeah, I think it was the two of them. And I think it was that combination of utter denial and then kind of excitement. Yeah. Because if you look down through the list of kind of LGBT related films, Ireland is noticeably absent for a long time on that list. And I was just wondering, did you notice that yourself as a gap kind of as you were becoming a filmmaker, I suppose that, you know, you would have the odd film like A Man of No Importance. We had, you know, The Crying Game back in 92. You would have had Cowboys and Angels. But did you, were you aware of that missing presence of Irish LGBT cinema? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think, I mean, I think LGBT cinema worldwide is kind of absent. We've had like, there's some incredible films and incredible examples and there's obviously a rich history there, but it always feels like they're a rarity when they come around and they always feel like a rarity when they're happy, um, which always hit me hard that it was always quite, a, it was usually quite a bleak 
um, picture of your life when you saw a queer film and the rare examples of it being kind of a joyous experience was so incredible. Um, but yeah, I didn't feel like, you know, when I first started making films, I was still closeted and it was really difficult. So I wasn't, you know, I, I was dealing with it in a different way. But then when you start trying to make queer films, you just keep getting these kind of ridiculous kind of kind of perception amongst the industry and amongst buyers, I guess, um, for want of a better word, in, is that it's niche. It's automatically going to be small and you're going to be a smaller filmmaker or a very niche filmmaker if you want to make um, queer films. Mm-hmm. And I think that really bugged me and depressed me <laughs> as a younger filmmaker um, because you want to represent your community and you want to make tell stories that are truthful to you but also you want to possibly have a big audience and it just felt like that wouldn't happen you know those very rare oscar films that broke through always felt like an exception that proved the rule and i think that was backed up by just distributors not giving queer cinema a fair shake so yeah it's only kind of in recent years i feel like the tide is turning and it's still very slow there's still like far too few queer films who were the LGBT filmmakers or what were the the gay films or the queer films that lit the way for you that were your touchstones? I mean, they're not all queer filmmakers, but I, a film that I adored when I was in, in college was My Summer of Love because it was just such a dreamlike, incredible film yeah. and really carried me with it. I loved <laughs> But I'm a Cheerleader, which is <laughs> such a campy, brilliant film. And I remember it was kind of critically derided at the time. Uh, because it wasn't that really po-faced, Oscar-y kind of, I know, conversion therapy film that people, straight people wanted. But it was just such a fun, campy, Waters-esque film. And I loved that. And it's, it, was such, it felt like such a rarity um, to see that kind of film with, with um, gay characters. So many, I mean, beyond that. But, I mean, John Waters, I, I loved... Um, I, I, all, all about my mother was one of the was the very first Almodovar I saw, and it kind of blew me away. And then obviously yeah. I discovered the rest of his catalogue. Um, yeah, so they weren't always by queer filmmakers, most like more often than not. But um, yeah, is it important to you that you're recognised as a gay filmmaker, David, or is that something that you want to sit very differently? I mean, I know from talking to artists and authors down the years that, for example, they're not comfortable with their book only sitting in the gay fiction section. They want to sit in the fiction section or not in the gay section at all, but only in the fiction section. I was just wondering, from your point of view, do you see yourself as a gay filmmaker or do you just see yourself as a filmmaker? No, I see myself as a gay filmmaker. I mean, I think, and the older I get, the the, the more comfortable and proud I am of that. I think I think it's for, you know, audiences and, and distributors to kind of to place those films in a wider context. I think that the onus is on them. It's not on me as a filmmaker to try and hide anything or to try and kind of minimize that side of it. You know, I, you know, I don't, I'm not always going to necessarily have this story or these queer leads. And my last film was far more subtextual in terms of being gay, but um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really proud to be a gay filmmaker and I'm more than happy to wear that label and to, you know, and I mean, I think with, you know, with Dating Amber, for instance, first and foremost, I wanted it to, I wanted it to connect with a queer audience. Um, and the fact that it's kind of connected beyond that is lovely and really nice. And the fact that it seems to be kind of a broad comedy is great. But first and foremost, I wanted queer people to see themselves in that experience. You know, but I think, I think it's really, with all these kind of stories, I think the own, I mean, I think that backlash of not wanting to be seen as a minority filmmaker first in any way, that just comes from the laziness of, 
distributors and, and streamers who've kind of placed you in that niche bracket um, on, unfairly because they are too close-minded to see that this is a story that might appeal beyond that core audience. Um, so yeah, the older I get, the f- I'm far more comfortable with yeah, just yeah, being a, uh, first and foremost a gay filmmaker. Um, and it's if other people decide to limit me because of that, that's their problem. The Cured was obviously a kind of a what you might refer to as a post-zombie horror movie where, you know, it was the story of what happens where all the other zombie movies finish. With Dating Amber, was it was it a very deliberate decision to do something a little bit more personal? And by personal, I don't mean autobiographical, but something a little bit closer to home? So, yeah, you want to obviously change the mold for yourself and make you know, do a 180, and that's great. But we did try and make Dating Amber then called Beards. Uh, several years before and it just didn't happen at the time so once the cure happened and it got into tiff um we went straight back to screen ireland for development funding to get it made and i kind of i think just kind of use that very tiny bit of leverage we had to kind of get into uh, production and development um so it was a story i always wanted to tell and it was so personal to me that it was always going to hopefully be made, whether, I think it was always something I would go back to try and make, no matter how many times I failed. Um, and I think the older I get, the more comfortable I am with comedy and kind of exploring that. I think, you know, I made The Cured when I was a far more depressed and angry man. And I think the film reflects that in many ways. <laughs> and I think as I've kind of grown as a, as a, as a person and, and as a writer and as a filmmaker, I've really kind of got to see the, the warmth and the comedy in, in tragedy. Um, and I think uh, going forward, my work will hopefully touch on that more, not always be so outrightly comedic as Dating Amber, but I think it will definitely have a bit more comedic flourishes than, say, The Cured did. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to do like, you know, a period dra- uh, more period drama than the 90s and, you know, sci-fi and, you know, there's plenty of things I'd like to adapt. I mean, I, I, I think like any filmmaker, you want to just be able to play and explore and not be put into one box. Um, you know, and I, I would cite people like Lenny Abramson as somebody who's really gotten to kind of mess around with various things, which is great. What was it like um, filming in the Curra? Because I know that the area where you grew up. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was like I couldn't imagine shooting it anywhere else. We put in a lot of legwork. The minute we got the, the go ahead to shoot, like like six, seven months before we shot, we just were like writing to the army. I was writing to my TD. My dad was getting in contact with all army colleagues, just trying to get access because they very often say no. And I think actually we're one of the, we're, it might be the first thing to shoot there since Braveheart. Like they, they're very difficult to get a yes from and I've gotten no's from them before and I got a no from them for The Cured. So I kind of couldn't fathom shooting it anywhere else. Um, and I've always wanted to bring the car to the big, big screen because it's just so beautiful. That's somewhere you don't appreciate when you're younger. So getting access to it was amazing and it me- meant it, it made the film all that much more personal and joyous for me. And I just love the Carabarics. It's like this red brick toy town. It just feels so surreal. And so getting to shoot there was, yeah, it was amazing. It was a dream. And it became a really fun experience because, you know, my, my family lived there and, you know, my dad was involved and my, my, my sister and my nephews and everything became extras and my niece. And yeah, it just became a much more family exercise yeah, I, I can't actually, I can't imagine having, I, can, I, can't, I can't imagine where we would shoot it if we didn't shoot it there. Like, it just doesn't feel like it would work anywhere else, which is always a problem when you write something so specifically to one location. But yeah, it was such a dream to get to shoot there. 
Um, we have to mention the performances as well, which are terrific throughout. I know you'd worked with Fiona O'Shea before. Was he in your head for the part the whole way along, or was it were you kind of very open to whoever was going to play the roles? Um, yeah, no, I worked with him when he was like about ten on a short film called The Mill. Um, and he was a great actor. It, but no, we did a really wide casting. I think all my anxiety with this film was wrapped up in getting right Eddie and Amber. I think I knew the film hung on their shoulders. So we did a really wide casting in Ireland and even England to get them and got lots and lots, hundreds of self-tapes um, with, excuse me, Louise Kiley, our incredible casting director. And Fiona Lola's tapes were great. Um, and I knew they were special. But then we did the chemistry week between like four boys and four girls. And it was just getting the right chemistry and the right combination. And once we got Fiona and Lola together, it was just electric. I mean, we knew we had our leads and kind of about 90% of my anxiety left me, which was nice. And then they worked so hard. Like this was over six months before we actually shot the film. And we did lots and lots of rehearsal. And for me, it was just important that they became friends because the film wouldn't work if you didn't feel their bond. And... By the time we got to shoot the film, they were best friends. They were really living in each other's pockets, which I couldn't have dreamt about. And I think that's pretty much why the film works. I mean, I'm really proud of everyone who did it. and I like my script, but um, I think it really just, just, it really hangs on them. And I think their bond and their chemistry shines through and, and, and kind of makes it what it is and it's why people have connected with it. Um, and they're, man, they're so nice and lovely and they worked so hard. Um, yeah, it was great. And then from, from that casting, actually, I do have just like we got we have such an amazing ensemble around them. And from that really wide casting we did for Eddie and Amber, we actually found all the other kids who were brilliant actors, just not necessarily right for Eddie and Amber. But you know, Ian O'Reilly and Anastasia Blake and Emma Willis and Lauren Canny, we found all them from that casting for Eddie and Amber. And you know, they're all so great. One of my favorite characters in the whole thing, give a special shout out to Evan O'Connor, who was just so brilliant as uh, the younger brother. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's like a I don't know he's like a he's a comedy genius. I don't know where he comes from. Well, he comes from Newbridge, where we actually shot the film. But um, yeah, he it's his first thing, and he's such this quiet little lad, and he just walks into the audition, and you you don't have that. You never know what to expect, but he doesn't he doesn't walk into a room instilling you with confidence because he's very shy, and then he just starts performing, and he's the funniest boy you'll ever ever meet, and he's got the quickest wit and he's such a good ad-libber yeah he's amazing um and that role could have been awful in the wrong hands i mean uh, kind of having a 12 year old talk about fingering may just be disgusting <laughs> he makes it so funny he's he's like he's he's definitely gonna be like kind of snapped up by some good appetite type in hollywood because he's such a genius um yeah, and like there's so many brilliant outtakes with him just going back and forth with Sharon Horgan. And it's like just watching two masters at work. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> he's 13. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's great. Um, we've mentioned uh, films like um, Handsome Devil. Um, and also you've got films like uh, A Day for Mad Mary. And, and Dating Amber comes yeah. in that in that we, it feels like LGBT filmmaking has really turned a corner in relation to, as you say, the miserable stories from the past are gone. And it's much more about exploring the positive sides of relationships and, and characters as people rather than just, you know, stereotypes as, as they would have been portrayed. In relation to LGBT filmmaking, where do you think it's going next? What, what do you think has been missed out up to now? I don't know. I think, I mean, I hope that it's, I hope that we're going to see just a broader spectrum of queer stories. I think, you know, I think there's definitely an appetite for more joyous stories in, in queer filmmaking. Um, you know, I think those, 
the press. I mean, I think actually when you look back in the last couple of years of those films that maybe 10 years ago would have been very worthy Oscar films haven't necessarily worked. Um, and then you have films like Call Me By Your Name or The Favourite and films that have been kind of quirkier and funnier or warmer have actually worked. And I think that's just reflecting the the audience's appetite for a different sides to these stories that isn't always so bleak and always so one note. So yeah, hopefully wider. And I think in general, I think hopefully there's a, there's been so few LGBTQ films that have dealt with the intersectionality of it all. Um, and obviously you know, you've now had Moonlight. I mean, it was funny because when I talked about my beautiful laundrette, like that was obviously dealing with race and sexuality um, in, in kind of Thatcherite England. And it felt like that there was a massive gap where, you know, you couldn't mingle and mess with all these different kind of things. And I feel like now we are kind of getting to see more and more of that and just a broader spectrum of these stories um, being told from so many different kind of perspectives. So, yeah, I, I hope we just a wider branch. And like, I'd love to see horror films. I mean, I saw St. Maud at uh, LFF last year, which is great, which is, you know, it's a really stylish horror film that kind of happens to have a main lesbian character. And it is actually specific because the, the nurse is trying to save her soul. So it's, it's integral, but it's not a genre you would have normally seen kind of a mainstream horror film or a mainstream kind of queer film in. Um, so that, that's, that's exciting to me to, to kind of get it out of that A-list biopic kind of mold. But yeah, I mean, there's been so many incredible. Yeah. And also actually, sorry, just like um, Tangerine, which is like, yes, such a great, like, like I mentioned that recently in something, it's like such a great kind of just old school Hollywood kind of taught film. And it obviously just happens to have two black trans women in, in the leads. And again, it's very specific and integral to the story, but it's not the kind of queer film I think you would have seen 10 years ago or would have gotten any attention 10 years ago or more. Um, so yeah, I, I just hope a much broader variety and I hope that we start seeing queer characters in different genres because it feels like it's always been ghettoized and put in its own genre and that's always been really frustrating as, a, as, a, as, a, as an audience member and a filmmaker. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned Tangerine because I, I, I haven't seen a film in recent times where the energy levels are just up to 100 the whole time and it maintains that momentum. For the whole, I mean, it's a, it's a short film, but I mean, it keeps that momentum going the whole time. I, I mentioned the length of it recently because it's 88 minutes I checked and like, you know, I think there's so, I, I mean, I always feel like Films now are about 10 minutes too long anyway. I think a lot of them are. Like that would have been a masterpiece if they cut a few. But like, it's just such a tight script and it was edited so seamlessly and i think it's it's the kind of film that you did see back in the 30s and 50s and you know that kind of very tight filmmaking has disappeared a little in recent years i think there's a lot of kind of on on kind of unnecessary depth that's afforded to films that are 20 minutes too long and this is just such a brilliantly crisp tight film that gets in and out and doesn't waste a frame and i don't think films like that get enough just credit for the for the writing, for that kind of brevity. You know, I think it's it's always harder to make something short. And I don't think that is ever appreciated. I remember reading a reviewer recently, go, or, or a while ago, saying that they, they had a bad sig- omen for a film because they saw it was under 100 minutes. Like, fuck you. That's such a bollocksy thing to say. And such a lazy view of film. This has nothing to do with queer filmmaking. This is just about me ranting about times. <laughs> Sorry. But my new my new standard is. Did you see Cold War? Yes, love Cold War. So a, a, a love story that runs over three decades, eighty nine minutes. So that's my that's my that's my thing now. Is if Cold War can do it in eighty nine minutes, you don't need to be running for two hours forty five. 
and actually all his films run pretty short Eva Eva as well and, and My Summer of Love is a really tight his I think the second or third film is really tight and even Resort before that so he's like he's just a master at economic storytelling and it's yeah. so good and it makes everything so much better um, David what are you working on next? Um, I'm, I'm working on a couple of things so i've been writing something in lockdown which i like which is um a dark revenge comedy that i really love called epping and then um i have another script that we're going out with soon and then i have a tv series that's set up in the u.s that we are hopefully going out to networks with soon so nothing specific i can talk about <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm yeah i'm keeping busy i'm kind of writing through lockdown which has been great we keep our ears to the ground for all that david frame thanks so much for your time thank you so much for having me thank you Taken from the Dating Amber soundtrack, that was Pillow Queens with Gay Girls. Earlier this week I spoke with academic and filmmaker Barry Dignam about some of the most important films in Irish LGBT plus cinema history. Just a quick note, we are still in lockdown and recording remotely, so there is reduced sound quality in this next segment. Barry, we're going to have a look at some important milestones in Irish LGBT plus cinema, but would I be right in thinking that visibility for LGBT stories in Irish cinema was historically very sparse, given that homosexuality was only decriminalised in 1993? There really wasn't. There wasn't anything. I mean, a couple of people were making some short films, uh, Ger Philpott, myself, Colette Cullen, and a couple of others, but there wasn't really any um, representation on screen that I can remember. And there might have been tangential characters um, appearing, but but nothing really by gay filmmakers about about kind of gay experience or anything like that. Would there have been an official policy at the time? I mean, I suppose if something was against the law, it's likely that in relation to funding, that stories or gay stories wouldn't necessarily have been funded by official bodies. I've never spoken to anyone who said that they weren't allowed. Um, but, but I mean, the difference between pre-93 and post-93, you know, we, we felt at the time, it was talked about at the time, that it was a bit like opening the curtains, and it really was. O- up until decriminalisation, people had talked about, well, you know, nobody gets brought to court over being gay. It didn't matter. It was so chilling. People, individuals may have, have, have made some funding decisions, but I think, I think after, after 93, everything opens uh, in terms of, you know, what you could and couldn't engage with in the state. And obviously with film at that stage, the state has a huge role to play in what gets funded and what didn't get funded. I mean, what kind of impact would it, it have had that all the stories that you were seeing were coming from the UK or abroad? Obviously, with the UK had decriminalised homosexuality in the late 1960s. So you would have had films like Sunday Bloody Sunday. You would have had My Beautiful Laundrette, the films of Derek Jarman. But there was no kind of Irish gay stories on screen. So what kind of impact did that have? On a, on a personal level, probably not on a day-to-day 
major impact level because I lived in the city. So I had, the, you know, I had Channel 4. And I also had the Lighthouse Cinema. So so actually I could get to see my beautiful laundress. And I, I nearly had a heart attack, I think, the first time I saw that film. Um, just actually seeing two men in, in, in you know, in love and, and you know, basically <laughs> riding each other on screen. <laughs> I had never seen anything like that. And, you know, literally, I, I think I nearly had a heart attack. I, mean, I was a kid at the time. Um, and the same, I suppose, as well with, with, with Morris. And um, there was that scene. I remember flicking through the channels and my grandmother was sitting beside me and I got to the, the, the boathouse scene was on, you know, whatever, Channel 4. And, uh, and my grandmother said, switch it on, switch it on. I was like, no, no, I have to watch it. I have to watch it. But anyway, I don't think... I mean, looking back as a grown-up and, and, and looking at the Irish film industry, I think, it's a, I think it's a pity that we weren't making our own our own stories. But I think those stories, at least if you're in the, if you, at least if you're in an urban environment, it was still really important that they were being made and that, that we were seeing them. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of things that that it was, you know, unfortunate that that we were the way we were in terms of um, in terms of you know the illegality of sexuality but but so many other things in terms of kind of twitching windows and, and how we kind of kept ourselves all in little boxes back then the first major milestone i suppose um, and although it was british funded was just before decriminalization and that would have been the crying game which was notable for any number of reasons it was a huge success at the international box office it looked at northern ireland politics it won an oscar um almost 30 years on how does its representation of a trans and queer character stand up you know, I watched it again yesterday, and I'm not, I'm, I'm a cisgendered gay male, so I'm not really in the best position to talk about whether it reflects trans issues or the trans experience all that well. But I, I certainly feel it stands up as a film, and it certainly stands up as something that was doing something completely different. Um, and, and hitting that kind of zeitgeist thing that you can never plan for. Um, and then just sometimes if you're, I think if the filmmaker is in tune with what's going on in the world and with their audience and, you know, kind of the audience are always ahead of them, if they can, if they can kind of put their finger on that, I think that's sometimes what makes some films like The Grind Game so successful. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I watched it for this again. I hadn't watched it for a long time. And, you know, while I can imagine some people might look back at that reversal, that reveal, literal reveal, uh, and maybe think that it was, you know, I don't know, a little a bit, of, a bit of a gimmick. I don't feel it is. It, you know, it's just a really, really interesting, complex story wrapped up in a super thriller. And when you think back, I'm just kind of thinking back vaguely to my own memories of it. I mean, it was literally all anybody could talk about. It was one of those films that, you know, I suppose it was one of the first examples of spoiler culture, where it was just like people trying to keep this big revelation under wraps. It still happens. I, you know, I, I, when I speak to first years and, and, and Crying Game is one of the films that, that comes up, it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to have to spoil it for you now because you haven't seen it and it's 30 years old. But it was massive. It was along the same, yeah, it was along the same kind of level of spoiler, the sixth sense, where people really, really wanted to say it, but couldn't. And then, of course, like, by even mentioning, you're kind of reading the spoiler a little bit. But it was huge. I mean, it sort of got kind of thought about trans issues really by sort of bait and switch um, presented this thriller film that you think is a, you know an IRA sta- kind of standard kidnap and um, blow people up and, and stuff sort of film and then suddenly it becomes this film about sexuality and a really I think an honest and a tender film about, about sexuality and sensuality as well and um, it was massive it was mental at the time The next film to come along then and was, I suppose it was the first film post uh, decriminalization would have been a man of no importance, which was a, a low-key drama starring Albert Finney as a as a closeted gay man. 
obsessed uh, with Oscar Wilde. But Ireland, in fact, didn't get its first on-screen kiss until 1996, which is a full three years after decriminalisation. And it was Ross and Arun that broke the mould. Um, at this point, I suppose as well, you're starting to see, and you've alluded to it already, you start to see an increase in the number of short films being released around kind of LGBT lives and stories. What was behind that movement, do you think? Was there, was there a very small, concentrated number of filmmakers focused on that? Or was there kind of a, a broader realisation of, of those lives and those stories? I don't think there was a ton of people at the time really wanting to make, in Ireland, wanting to make kind of gay and lesbian teams films. Um, I don't remember there being loads of us. Um, I mean, I used to get slagged that I was the only gay in the village, and I wasn't. But, but there wasn't like, you know, a massive group of people who were, who were kind of forming a movement. I think there was probably a few different things happened at the same time. Obviously, we had um, decriminalization. I think at the same time, a lot of the international film festivals were probably beefing up their LGBT. They would have always had an LGBT strand in them. If you looked at Berlin, the, the panorama of the Berlin Film Festival uh, always had gay and lesbian films, but the main programme had never really. And, and they started you know, looking for films, I think, actively for the main programme. And that happened around the world. Um, and I think so. So when I started making shorts, I probably was able to tap into that in a way that, that you know, maybe other people hadn't before. Um, and then other people had afterwards. But I couldn't say there was, you know, we didn't meet every month in a in a bar and plot how <laughs> we change the face of LGBT cinema. I mean, I think normally the filmmakers, if you got together, it would be at, you know, the, the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival or Gays as it became. And you'd do a panel and, and everybody would talk about it as if it was a movement and the filmmakers would kind of look at each other and kind of go, uh, I just made a film. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was it, it only in retrospect, I think you, you can see that there was a kind of, there was, a, you know, a few more being made and they were finding an audience maybe that, in a way that hadn't, been found before and I think at the same time more films were being made so when I when I came out of film school there just weren't that many films being made so you go to you'd send your film to Galway and you'd probably have a 50-50 chance of getting in you know Galway was, was the first festival after we graduated but I think now it's you know there's multiples and multiples of that many short films being made because people can make them on their phones there's loads of colleges there's I wouldn't say there's more funding opportunities, but there's probably a little bit more diverse funding opportunities. Mm-hmm. There's so many more films being made. So I think that had started probably when back in whatever it was, 98 to 2001, when I was when I was making some of those shorts. And I suppose in that in-between point is the first of kind of the lulls that we see, because then uh, in 2003, we have two LGBT films that come along. The first was Cowboys and Angels, which was uh, a David Gleeson film starring Michael Legg and Alan Leach, and then Goldfish Memory, which was notable for the fact that it looked at kind of a whole different combination of types of relationships. Yeah, I think it was interesting they both came out at the same time. Um, And they're both, I guess they feel like they're both sort of Celtic Tiger movies, even though they're probably a little bit... No, they're probably in the middle of the Celtic Tiger. Um, Cowboys and Angels was just so kind of up, which was great. It, it was so easy at that stage, and certainly earlier, to kind of always go to the, the negatives. And it, it sort of it sort of reversed that, and it, it was bright and shiny and funny, and, and you know, even though it was Limerick, it was, it was Limerick, it was urban. Uh, and it was kind of... It was really good fun, and it looked like a movie, so it didn't look like a student movie and I don't say that in a particularly bad way but back then student movies were largely shot on, on 16 millimeters or we just moved on to kind of early, early digital formats and um, so it looked like it had a budget and you know an early Alan Leach working the 
ass off his cheekbones and, and, and Michael Legg. Just the two of them were just like adorable together. And it kind of played, I think, was interesting with the, with the kind of what your perceptions of sexuality were and, and what your perceptions of, of kind of heterosexuality were as well to, to Michael Legg character. I think with Goldfish Memory, Liz Gill, the director, had a, she seemed to have a very clear idea of what she wanted to do in terms of showing it kind of a cross-section of characters and, and how, you know, people aren't maybe still stay in the same box all the time, how it's a bit fluid. And, and her, her approach to making it, I think, was, you know, it seems very fluid. It's effortlessly flowed between one group of characters and another and, and one character's bed and another. Uh, but I do think it's very, you know, again, I watched it over the last few days and I do think it's, it's mad how looking at it now through the, the kind of prism of the Celtic Tiger and how those, those characters were all, we'd come from a, a society where we were sort of all supposed to be the same and this was the first film that I remember where the characters were all independent and wanted to be different and could go to, and if that meant changing beds and changing sexuality overnight, that, that's what that's what happens and it's an interesting one to look back at actually and interestingly 2005 saw breakfast and pluto which again was another neil jordan film so you had the crying game and then 13 years later he comes back and there's another lgbt story with breakfast on pluto which again was kind of an, an international hit and, and went to toronto but then the breaks go on again there's there's nothing really until 2011 and albert knobs which is you know a six-year period trying to think back in a way what was happening in terms of the funding scene people were getting funding i think something may have happened as well and i you know i'm absolutely open to being corrected on this there is a kind of a large international distribution network for gay and lesbian movies and it seemed to if you look at some of the american companies through that period they sort of sat back on the type of films that were being distributed. So you, you, if you look through the program of a, of a kind of a gay and lesbian film festival, or indeed the catalogue of one of the releasing companies, one of the sales agent companies in the States, they all had two 18 to 24-year-old uh, topless good-looking guys on the on the cover of the, of the DVD. And it seemed like another one of these was coming out every week. Maybe that's the market was looking for that, and maybe, I don't know, Maybe people weren't, certainly over here, weren't that interested in making that. But at the same time, then the the, mark, the, the kind of stream market was probably not interested in that or certainly had, had started being interested in other types of films for a while, other types of stories, maybe. Um, the funding obviously was difficult. Um, to, you know, you don't, you don't really in Ireland get to make a low budget um, kind of niche movie without some support. Um, from Screen Ireland. But that being said, I've, you know, from my point of view, I've, I've never felt a resistance in Screen Ireland to, you know, stories. There may have just been at times a resistance to not having any money to spend. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was, a, there was a gap, but I think probably cyclical health, but that gap will happen again. We're, you know, kind of we're in, a, we're in a pretty good point for those movies at the moment. We mentioned the decriminalisation in 1993, and I suppose the other social movement that happened um, that kind of cinema pivoted around was the marriage referendum in 2015. And before that, you had Viva, Paddy Bratnock's beautiful film set in Cuba, um, written by Marco Halloran. You had The Queen of Ireland, which was Conor Horgan's documentary about Panty Bliss. But then you had films that very much made for a younger generation. So first off, you had John Butler's Handsome Devil. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd go probably go back a tiny bit further than marriage equality. So marriage equality was the big moment. Um, but I think... In, in in the same way that decriminalization happened, I think when civil partnership happened, those curtains opened again. So, when, you know, everybody was going to, uh, your auntie and your uncle were going to the wedding, you know, the civil partnership of, of their cousin from down the road. 
Uh, and that just opened the windows again, I think, or opened the blinds again a little bit and let some let some air in. So I think to a certain extent, well, obviously, the Queen of Ireland um, was was pretty much related to all of that. Uh, and and Paddy Burnick's um, film Viva may have, you know, the funding for that or t- Treasure getting the funding may have been pushing an open door because things were, things had changed again. But I think certainly in terms of Handsome Devil, I think Handsome Devil is probably the most movie movie that come out in the last while about kind of gay male experience or whatever it feels like a movie like a mainstream Hollywood movie it's it's really well crafted um, and I think that probably does lock into the whole the movement of um, marriage equality um, As I mentioned Barry three of your short films are on the iFi player tell us a little bit about each of those um, So the first one is a film called Dream Kitchen which at the time was supposed to was supposed to be a fantasy about coming out so it kids you know, imagines how it would be to come out to his parents and, and of course in the imaginary world I think it's amazing and then he comes kind of crashing back down to ground it does have a happy ending though I think uh, back then it was a fantasy oddly now it's not a fantasy anymore because I think what what happens in that film would have been impossible back in 1998 virtually impossible but I think in in 2000 uh, and 20, there are probably coming out stories that aren't a million miles away from that. But I think it was, we wanted to make it, I guess, as a, as a rejection to some of the other films that were just so grim at the time, that if you were, if you were gay, that you, you know, you really should think about hiding yourself away. Um, and we just wanted to, to do something that was, that was not that. And that was a bit of fun. And actually, to be honest, make it for specifically gay audience for a gay film festival. And we finished the film and had no idea whether anybody was going to want to see it. And it turned out they did. Um, and it, it, it was great, actually, because for me, it won the first public screening was the Galway Film Flap. And it won Best Short. And I remember sitting in the room where they announced it to the filmmakers beforehand. And, and there was a big cheer in the room and people seemed to really, really like it, uh, which was obviously a relief for me. But it was great. And it kind of it kind of screamed all over the place. It got into the Berlin Film Festival and official selection. And I was so young at the time, I didn't know that was a big deal. Uh, and it had sales agents. So, they, you know, they were selling it around the world. So it was all, it was a great learning curve and it was really exciting. And um, the next one was a, a very short Chicken, um, which is written by a friend of mine, Audrey O'Reilly. And it was part of the Screen Ireland or Irish Film Board, it was at the time. They had a, a short, short scheme that they were just starting. I think they were moving money from their marketing budget and they wanted to make some, you know, essentially ads, narrative ads, but that were just ads for Irish film in the sense of that they were good films. I made Chicken for That, Darren Healy and Niall O'Shea. It's two minutes and 48 seconds, I think. We were contractually obliged to deliver a film that was three minutes. Uh, so it was an interesting, interesting edit. And I don't really know if we knew what we were doing. Um, it, it was two day shoot in a freezing cold weather. And all I remember was that there was this script that my friend Audrey had written on it. And it, to me, it captured the kind of a physical longing, the idea of masculinity and us not being able to, you know, Irish men were never great at touching each other. Even, you know, like best friends would go to a pub and chat to each other all night, but would never make eye contact. Would look over each other's shoulders into the middle distance. And maybe if they were really, really drunk, they'd give each other a hug goodnight. But like these two characters in, in this very, very short film, I think just we just needed to make contact, physical contact with another guy. And I think I got really lucky in the sense that there was something in the air at the time about that. And subsequently the film got selected for Cannes, for competition plan. And then it obviously, that was huge for, for me. It was pretty, I think it was pretty big for, for all of us. It was great crack. But it also meant that it got a really good audience. 
you know, either Berlin or Cannes were an absolutely brilliant route to get your film out to see, to be seen by lots and lots of people. And that's still screening. I think if, if for personally, if Chicken had been a single, uh, I would probably pay my mortgage. Uh, <laughs> now, you don't make any money off short films, but if it, it's been seen so many times and talked about so many times. Uh, and, and I look at it sometimes and I'm not really sure why people watch it, but, but I, I'm glad they do. The third that's up there is a, uh, is a film called uh, Affair to Mickey, uh, written by Lachlan Deegan and produced by Siobhan Burke um, of Rough Magic, who then became Saffron Films. I suppose that was the first film that, that I directed that I didn't produce which was nice. I didn't have to, or at least co-produce with some of the others, I definitely had help. And we had a budget as well. So it was, just, it was an Irish film board funded shortcut. So I think we had, you know, I want to say 80,000 euro or something to make it, which was kind of a crazy amount of money. It took a long time to get that together. We, we had applied a few times and then we had got some money from Filmbase, but it wasn't going to be enough money to make it. So the Arts Council and Filmbase had funded us, but I think that was 10,000 euro. And really it had animals and kind of underground scenes with animal, you know, with ferrets chasing rabbits and stuff like that. So, so it, it needed to have a budget. We couldn't do it, we couldn't do it on, the, on the cheap. And so it took it took a while for us to get there, um, and and eventually we did. I think maybe I, I spoke about timing a little bit earlier. I think we might have slightly mistimed that film in the sense of when it came out, the story maybe had been told. Um, but I still think it stands up reasonably well. It's got a, it's got a lovely cast. It's it's kind of well made. I think there's an authenticity to the story because it was sort of loosely based on on Lachlan's memories. So I'm really glad we made it. it you know, it actually. Probably did pretty well. It, it's it's screened a lot around the place, and I think I think in terms of for me, the budget's apparent on the screen. And it's still very timely, Barry, because I mean, it, it's very much an exploration of that idea of what masculinity is and what masculinity should be, which is still very much in the discourse. It might be more timely now. I think actually, I think it probably it it, it was timely a year or two before we made it. And I think it's probably a little bit timely now as well, in in terms of what, but maybe in a slightly different way. Like we never. The, the character in the film is is really too young for us to have ever decided whether he was gay or not. Uh, I think now you might look and go, well, you know, is he cis or not? Um, and actually, the, 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 I guess our theme behind that, or our point is just, you know, for for a kid at that age, you know, in, in, the, in the film, the, um, the kid's basically, his dad tries to butch him up. He, he dresses as a, as a girl doing tea parties with the women from the Legion of Mary who are his toys. And his dad decides that he's going to intervene and brings him hunting ferrets. And the kid turns out to be actually really good at hunting, but hates it. And the dad is really bad and it turns his stomach. And the story is kind of like, just chill out and leave leave things be and, and sort of let people who they want to be and, and allow them to tell you, I suppose, allow them to, to you know be themselves at whatever rate they want to be at. So I suppose maybe that's an interesting, an interesting look at sex and sexuality and gender at the moment. Well, as I mentioned, Barry's short films are available to view worldwide for free on the iFi player, while many of the other films we've spoken about are available to stream from volta.ie. Barry, thanks so much for your time. No problems. That's all from this week's iFi podcast. We'll be back next Friday. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The IFI is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.